2: WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois says. Thank you for listening. Two concurrent exhibitions exploring the identities of indigenous people, their forced removal and displacement, are on view at the Atlanta Contemporary. Later this hour, we'll hear about returns, Cherokee diaspora and art, and you are Eleswa Medicine. Plus, our series of local artists in their own words, speaking of the arts, today features multimedia artist Carl Janes. First. This summer the Atlanta Shakespeare Company at the Shakespeare Tavern will perform the Bard's most controversial play, The Merchant of Venice, with its challenging themes of racism and anti-Semitism. The play continues to provoke heated discussion and ongoing scholarship. This production also presents a new twist with an all-female-identifying cast of actors from the theater series Lady Shakes. The Merchant of Venice opens July 30th and runs through August 14th. Joining me now, we assume, our director, Katie Grace Brown, and actor Rivka Levine, who portrays the moneylender, Shylock. Welcome to City Lights.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for having us.
2: Who would like to give us a synopsis of The Merchant of Venice?
1: Katie Grace, go ahead.
3: Antonio, The Merchant of Venice, and... Bassanio his best friend are needing funds to fund Bassanio going to try to get himself a wealthy wife Portia who is the heiress of Belmont but right now Antonio's money is all wrapped up in sea adventures and so they go to Shylock to ask for money who is very reasonably you know not unwilling to do so but you know skeptical because they have treated him so badly in the past but he does offer to lend the money with a a bond that's very unheard of before as opposed to taking interest saying well if you don't repay this money i will take a pound of flesh instead Shalak doesn't particularly believe that that will come to pass. Antonio is very confident in his sea ventures, so they make that bond. Bassanio goes to Belmont and woos Portia, and while that is happening, all of Antonio's vessels are lost
2: at sea. Hmm. Rivka, the Merchant of Venice, is Shakespeare's most contentious play. Because of the character of Shylock, the Jewish moneylender whom you portray, the Atlanta Shakespeare Company's own artistic director, Jeff Watkins unflinchingly called it Shakespeare's most racist play. Why is Shylock troubling to so many theatergoers and actors who portray the character?
1: I think because Shakespeare did him honestly a favor of not making him perfect. If he was the world's kindest man and most patient man and entirely sympathetic, I think the message would be a little too on the nose of why are these other characters being so hateful to him given what a magnificent human he is. The fact is he is not a magnificent human. He is impatient. He is trodden down and is not always gentle. And he is human. He's human. He's extremely human, and he is flawed. And yet, even as a flawed human being, he is owed the dignity of being treated as human. And I think that's Shakespeare's point. He's a controversial character because he is not perfect. And so many of his imperfections could be played up by a director with an agenda uh, and have been historically played up by a director with an agenda to show how calculating and money-loving the Jews are. And I think Shakespeare's point is, even with all of that, you still need to treat him like a human being.
2: How do you interpret the character of Shylock with sensitivity to the Jewish community?
1: Uh, um, I think part of it is just being true to the Judaic principles. I, I grew up in an Orthodox home. My parents and sister are Orthodox Jews. I do not practice in an Orthodox fashion, but still have all of that background and learning and loyalty. So a lot of what I'm imbuing into shylock is what parts of the text that shakespeare unknowingly gave him play into a very jewish way of walking through the world for example in the very first scene when you meet shylock he tells this long monologue of a tale out of the torah or or if you're christian out of the old testament And the fact that Jews love to talk Torah, they love to discuss and have a friendly argument and that he is inviting his enemy to have this friendly argument over a bit of text is very telling. I I don't want to give away spoilers, but if you were to come to see the play, the very last line that Shylock speaks, I think I'm giving a much different delivery than a non-Jewish actor would choose. And I think it's because I cannot see a way in a Jewish context to deliver his last two lines, mm, except same. for, I, I, yeah, I don't wanna give away spoilers, okay. but you will understand if you did not come to see the show.
2: Are there any changes to the original text?
1: No, yeah, uh, both Katie Grace and our, um Artistic director Jeff were adamant that the text stands. It is as it is. And in this play, we don't pull any punches because the point is that we see the racism, we see the ugly. In some of our other shows, we might pull that because it's unnecessary. In this show, every single racist and anti Semitic remark is necessary.
2: Katie Grace. Who are the other major characters? You gave us a wonderful synopsis. But can you tell us a little bit about the other important players?
3: Absolutely. I think that definitely from Shylock's perspective, Jessica, uh, his daughter, is so important to the story because while Shylock is very committed to his Jewish faith, Jessica is really in a point of questioning that and wanting a different life and has lines about, you know, my husband will make me a Christian. And so she she runs away from home. Um, And I think that's an incredibly tense and important aspect of this piece. The play is called The Merchant of Venice, uh, which is definitely a reference to Antonio, who begins begins the play and his best friend Bassanio, and we're definitely exploring their relationship very depthfully of of why would Antonio be willing to risk so much and do so much for this particular friend. Our artistic director, Jeff Watkins, does not believe in subtext in Shakespeare. This play is making me doubt that because when Antonio and Bassanio speak, I feel like I could write a whole other play about the things they don't say in very charged moments between those two. And then of course we have Portia who is, you know, up in Belmont, uh, which is a a magical, you know, not real place in Italy. Shakespeare tends to give us that out in the rural areas, some fictitious other town. And her father has died and left her beholden to a, a riddle that he set up before he died. And the man who gets to marry her will be the man who chooses correctly between three caskets of gold, silver, and lead. And within one of those caskets is her portrait and no one can marry her unless they solve that riddle. So she is, she is very trapped by her circumstances in the beginning. She has been raised outside of the culture of Venice and, and all of a sudden marries Bassanio and finds herself right in the middle of this controversy. So a really interesting journey for that woman.
2: If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wright's speaking with two of the women behind the Atlanta Shakespeare Company's Lady Shakes production of The Merchant of Venice, director Katie Grace Brown and actor Rifka Levine. I'd love to hear from both of you about... The Lady Shakes series at the Shakespeare Tavern.
1: Sure. The first Lady Shakes was a series of scenes, fights. I cannot recall whether it was the first or second year that we also did a Madrigal. But mostly it was born of the recognition that even though Shakespeare has written some marvelous, strong, opinionated female characters, the ratio of female characters to male characters is pretty wide, uh, that gap. And that if you are casting gender traditional, women don't get an awful lot of opportunity in most of the Shakespeare plays. So it was uh, the brainchild of our friend Danny Hurd, And Danny organized this evening of scenes directed by, produced by, performed by women, and women got to play roles they typically would not get to play, such as King John or Hamlet. There were some fight scenes where we got to wield weapons that, again, the, our characters would not necessarily be wielding if we were playing female-only characters, and it was extremely well-received, so I think there were three years in total where we did scene nights. And then Katie Grace, I'll I'll let you talk about how that has morphed into full productions.
3: Well, and then the pandemic happened. So we really lost momentum on those scene nights. And it was actually sitting outside, socially distanced, myself, Jeff, and then Laura Cole, our director of education and training, trying to figure out how we were going to restart live production when we were still not permitted to gather in large groups indoors, we came up with the idea of doing an all-female A Midsummer Night's Dream production at the Atlanta Contemporary Museum. That was last May. To just do it as an experiment, you know, I always felt like these scene nights were leading up to one of these days we're going to do a full production. It's certainly not unheard of. In the world of Shakespeare performances, we just had never done it at the Atlanta Shakespeare Company. And so we did, that was our great return to live production. We did a weekend of all-female Midsummer Night's Dream. And honestly, really trying to get around some COVID concerns because at that point not everyone was vaccinated and the nature of being an actor is close proximity, breathing the same air, possibly spitting on your scene partners if you're articulating very well and also intimate moments. So we really stepped around and avoided a lot of that with the blocking and we reopened the indoor performances with a revival of that that production. And it has now become a mainstay. It is a guarantee we have from our artistic director that one show a year can be all female identifying. We do say female identifying because them presenting non-binary folks, trans women, all of the above are, are welcome to be a part of that, have been just as marginalized in Shakespeare casting. So I wanted to do the Merchant of Venice in particular as all women because it is such a gritty, complicated play and having a a room full of very sensitive, brave, supportive female identifying artists. We say no space can be truly safe I can't guarantee that uh, because I am not responsible for the actions that someone that is not me might take, but I can strive to make every space I curate as brave as possible and having a bunch of uh, women who cannot wait to tackle these roles such as Rivka playing Shylock that was previously not in the cards necessarily has been the bravest space I can imagine. And I hope that Jeff will let us keep doing the hard ones because we are ready for it.
2: Mm. There is a particular scene in Merchant of Venice where Shakespeare offers a challenge to the gender conventions of his time, that involving Portia and a bit of courtroom drama. How does this scene play out in your production?
3: we actually blocked that scene last night and my Portia came up to me afterwards and said, I'm really struggling with this because she's, all, you know, in a, in a world where we're already gender bending to then gender bend, a gender bend, <laughs> you know? And she was like, do you, do you want me to talk differently? You know? And, and I said, no, I don't, I don't need you to start speaking like this, but <laughs> it, it definitely poses a, a problem. I think rather than playing up the physical aspects of what it means to be a man, you know, coming in with a little more of just giving that character now more male-centric objectives in what she's trying to accomplish and for her, she's been so sheltered, you know, we've talked a little bit about the affluenza, you know, she's by far the most wealthy character that we encounter, and and how much can it just be a game to her in this world of very real stakes? Obviously, the costuming for those characters will will help us out a great deal as well. We've seen her in fabulous gowns, and now she's wearing a judge's robe, but It does become tricky and something that I think is a moment where what we create in the room is going to be helped out immensely by our design team (laughs) to really help us imagine what that situation looks like and plays out as.
2: Rivka, Shakespeare has a history of playing with gender roles. From what I've read about the Lady Shakes actors, there's joy and freedom in these opportunities, Would you share some of your experiences with fellow actors experimenting with gender in Shakespeare's work, whether he intended it or not? It's
1: hard for me to answer from a personal perspective, because this is the first male character that I've gotten to play, other than, you know, a sort of a soldier backing somebody up. But I don't know, Katie Grace, I don't recall your entire performance history. Is that something you could answer a little more?
3: cleanly similarly to Rivka I am not a go-to when we do gender bend but one of the greatest performances I have seen on our stage was when Mary Ruth Ralston who is currently playing Antonio was cast as Henry VI in the three parts of Henry VI and I think that was such a pivotal moment For our company, because as Rivka pointed out, yes, sometimes being a soldier character, you know, filling up a group scene, sure, put the ladies in a soldier's uniform and no one's really going to be thinking too hard about it. But that was the first time that it was a major character with a huge three play arc that was given to a woman and we have so many men in our company who could have played that role brilliantly as well. But there was something about the vulnerability that Mary Ruth encapsulated in that role that i I think was remarkable and has, has blown the door open. We have now had a female Mercutio. We have had a female Benvolio and it is a bit of education for our audiences. When that was a practice that 10 years ago, uh, we were not particularly playing around with. And as it becomes more and more commonplace in our casting practices, we've had to switch up how the dressing rooms work because now it is much more likely that there will be more women than men in a single production, even in a non-Lady Shakes piece. So we're making a lot of uh, gender equality strides in our casting practices, and so Lady Shakes now, as opposed to a fight for equality, is simply a celebration of where we are on that continuum.
2: Hmm. Katie Grace, in My research on Lady Shakes, I read that your colleague Danny Hurd said, there's a reason we keep coming back to Shakespeare's plays. We're not finished with them. Such a rich statement. What does that observation mean to you? And Rivka, please feel free to add as well.
3: Shakespeare's plays have have this enduring quality, I believe, because while Shakespeare was very much a man of his time, his genius was in capturing what it is to be human and the obstacles that humans face have not evolved terribly much since the Elizabethan period. But what we have to do now, while we honor this incredible language and the questions that Shakespeare raises in his pieces, is we have to reimagine them for the world that we live in now and try to avoid making mistakes of the past as we learn how to be kind humans who are inclusive, who treat other humans well, and who struggle with the same core philosophical struggles that Elizabethan England's English people would have, such as what do you do when a plague comes through and closes the playhouses? You know, Ah. for me producing Romeo and Juliet back in February was so uncanny as the plague, you know, is, is starting to creep into Verona and that threat is imminent directing that play now, I have never felt so uh, connected to that aspect of that story. So I think, yes, we're not finished with them because the world is is still spinning and I can't imagine a time where we ever will be finished with these pieces. What do you think, Riskev?
1: You put it beautifully. I would piggyback on that just to say that Shakespeare was an incredible philosopher. He posed questions and offered opinions in such a way that they were, he allowed his audience to grapple with the problem at the same time as the character grappled with the problem. He did not try to tell us what to think. He asked us questions and asked us to think about our answers to them. Indicative in uh, one of Shylock's speeches, Shylock is asking questions, not telling. He says, hath not a Jew eyes, hath not a Jew hands, organs, dimensions, senses. Not, I have eyes, I have senses, I'm the same as you. They are all questions. And it's the same in Hamlet's To Be or Not to Be, that is the question. Do I kill myself or don't I? Do I take revenge or don't I take revenge? All of these questions are ones, as Katie Grace said, that are as poignant and timely today as they were when they were first asked 400 years ago. So the reason we're not done with these plays is because those questions still remain and we still have to answer them.
2: Rivka Levine, who portrays Shylock in the Lady Shakes production of the Merchant of Venice, and director Katie Grace Brown, who is also the associate producer for the Atlanta Shakespeare Company. This show will be on stage at the Shakespeare Tavern in Midtown, July 30th through August 14th. You can find out more on our website, wabe.org. In a moment, We'll hear about two new exhibitions at the Atlanta Contemporary, both focusing on identities of indigenous peoples. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WAPE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. Tom Belt of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians once said Among Native Americans, you don't come from a place, you are of a place. Two concurrent exhibitions exploring The identity of Indigenous peoples, their forced removal and displacement, are on view at the Atlantic Contemporary through September 4th. City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke with Alyssa Harkins and Dr. Ashley Holland, curators of Returns, Cherokee Diaspora and Art. And you are Helle Medicine. The Atlanta Contemporary's Executive Director, Veronica Kesinick, also joined the conversation and began with this explanation of land acknowledgement.
5: We, Atlanta Contemporary, uh, also followed in... The path of other organizations and institutions in making a land acknowledgement to acknowledge the muskogee creek peoples the land of which atlanta contemporary sits but we also reached out to friend and colleague and curator miranda kyle to discuss what this acknowledgement could mean not just as a statement, but as an active and engaging um, opportunity to truly um, acknowledge the land. And so this exhibition is a result of uh, both that conversation and the work that came about with Miranda and John Hayworth.
4: Why was it important to the Atlanta Contemporary to have exhibitions spotlighting the Indigenous diaspora?
5: So we have been, Atlanta Contemporary has been working very hard to amplify diverse voices that both are um, centering women, persons of color, and in this exhibition, uh, indigenous persons. And so it was really important for us to highlight the work uh, being done by contemporary artists, and in this case, by contemporary artists of the indigenous diaspora. So Miranda Kyle, who's the arts and culture program manager of the Atlanta Beltline, And John Hayworth, who's the director of public programs for the National Museum of the American Indian, affiliated with the Smithsonian Institute, acted as our curatorial consultants for this vision. And we met uh, a number of times via Zoom, of course, we were in in the middle of the pandemic. And we began discussions about what an exhibition centering contemporary artistic voices could look like. John and Miranda put together an amazing list of thought leaders and curators and artists who are really advancing discourse in contemporary art and in the indigenous diasporic field. And Ashley Holland, Dr. Ashley Holland and Elisa Harkins became our curators for these two exhibitions. And we've been working diligently since June of 2021 in putting this exhibition together.
4: Ashley and Elisa, before we get into the separate exhibitions, I just wanted to ask how do the two exhibitions relate to one another while also having their own distinct focuses?
0: Do you want to take that, Elisa? Sure.
6: Yeah. So when I was first invited as a curator, I was told that this was an indigenous show. It didn't specify what nations. And after some thinking and some conversations with friends, I decided to focus on people who are Muscogee Creek and Cherokee. It was really interesting that the first time that Ashley and I met on Zoom, Ashley wanted to show uh, Cherokee people. So it was, it was really great that um, both of us sort of had a similar idea about how to, narrow down and have a a focus for
4: the, for both of the shows. What went behind that, choosing that certain nation and peoples uh, to focus on?
0: Well, I know for me, I am Cherokee. So it made sense for me to focus on Cherokee people. Elisa, you, you are Cherokee and Muskogee. So it almost seems obvious when we say it out mm-hmm. loud.
4: Mm-hmm.
6: Right. And also uh, after doing a site visit, It just became really obvious to me the erasure that had happened, the complete erasure of this history, that no one knows what the Trail of Tears is. Uh, It was pretty heartbreaking. So I felt like the more specific that I could get, the better.
4: How does this exhibit explore the erasure of the Muskegee and Cherokee people from the Southeast? Well, there's some
6: plants that are being shown in the secret garden, as well as some vessels with Muskogee language on it and poems by Joy Harjo. So this is sort of like a a reclamation of space. It's also sort of pointing to our traditional plant knowledge and the plants that were grown in the Southeast and how those plants are really special to us and they hold language and they hold ceremony and they just point to different times of the year, how we think about time. And also Nathaniel Cummings Lambert, his piece uh, really speaks directly to land and he actually brought dirt from Cherokee, North Carolina, and put it in the space and really directly points to this erasure and the and the Trail of Tears and the, the forced removal of Indigenous people from the Southeast to what was then called Indian Territory because it was before statehood, and we now call it Oklahoma. Hmm.
4: For those unfamiliar with Joy Harjo. Uh, She's the United States Poet Laureate, and she's the first Native American to hold that honor. Would you tell us about the different plants that are in the exhibition? Sure.
6: These plants were cultivated by Patrick Freeland, who is a teacher at College of Muscogee Nation. He is also the Muscogee gardener at the school. And some of the plants were cultivated in Oklahoma, and some were cultivated in Georgia. Some plants included in this Muskogee garden are red willow, pidgey, which is tobacco, red buckeye, and yapan holly, which is traditionally made into a tea that's called black drink.
4: Very cool. Would you tell us about the meaning behind the title of this exhibit?
6: You are Haliswa. So Haliswa means medicine and in our traditional uh, indigenous ways medicine could be a lot of different things so medicine could be a song uh, medicine could be uh, a plant it could be a person you know the affect that you get from someone that you that makes you feel good so I w- I wanted to title the show you are Heliswa really speaking to the artists that are in the show, that they are medicine and then they have created this work that's based on their knowledge, their experiences, their indigenous knowledge, and that is being put into the work and that becomes the show.
4: Wow. That's incredibly beautiful and thoughtful. Great title. One of the installations on view in the exhibit is a video by Jeremy Charles called Tochu meaning red bird. What does this film entail? Tochu is
6: a work of indigenous futurism where there's a woman who is in a traditional Cherokee village. And then she's also in this futuristic sort of uh, rebel faction in the future. And it's really great because They only speak Cherokee in the film. So the rebels in the future are are indigenous. (laughs) But what Jeremy Charles really wanted was to touch on the the themes of um, missing and murdered indigenous women, which is something that's really difficult to talk about or portray because, you know, we don't want to perpetrate violence by showing violence. But he does this in a very poetic way where she's in the future and she's in the past and she's being attacked by this cyborg in the future. And she's being attacked by a settler colonialist man in the past. And it leaves a lot of things up to the imagination. Why is this man attacking her? Why is she in this rebel faction in the future? For me, it brings up thoughts of like forced assimilation And, you know, this idea that you get punished for speaking your language, you get punished for, you know, holding your traditional ways, makes me think of these things that have happened. And yeah, I think it's a really great piece.
4: Yeah, it sounds incredibly fascinating. Ashley, the title of the exhibition that you curate borrows the name from the historian James Clifford's book, Returns, Becoming Indigenous in the 21st Century. In what ways do the artists explore the theme of cultural renewal in this exhibit?
0: Yeah. So the show has a a history in some ways that goes beyond just being presented at um, Atlanta Contemporary and that these were the artists that I highlighted in my dissertation where this text by Clifford was really pivotal in thinking about what it means to be, an indigenous person an indigenous artist in the 21st century living away from our ancestral lands our homelands and creating art as a way to reconnect back to those places if not physically then metaphorically and so i had had numerous conversations with um losing hill and Brendan mallory and cape twist who all were so kind to sit down and have long um, interviews with me that we really talked about what does it mean to be an Indigenous person not living in our homeland, which for, you know, K. Twist, he's constantly thinking especially about like Oklahoma as homeland, but even pushing it beyond that back to our ancestral lands where Luzine, who is Eastern Band of Cherokee, the North Carolina connections, and then for Cherokee Nation, a lot of our families came from the Georgia area. And so this moment to have the exhibition, I started thinking it was a literal, now not metaphorical, but a literal return back to this place that is a very integral part of who we are as Indigenous people, even if we are not living there anymore or have never lived there. I think this was really for all of us a a unique experience to be able to do that and to bring the art back and to create a cultural connection through that art just existing within the space.
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned Luzine Hill. We've had her on the show before. Fabulous work. And she's known for her conceptual installations focusing on issues that relate to Native American women, specifically in opposition to colonial patriarchy. What can you tell us about her artwork in this exhibit?
0: The thing I love about Luzine's work is that you can describe it as both really like powerful and loud, but also very quiet and intimate. And I think that happens with both of the pieces that are in the show with traces and wounds. Aesthetically, it's just a gorgeous work. But the longer time you spend with it, and the more you read about it, you realize it's having all of these conversations about not just violence against women, but violence against our culture, violence against the land, thinking about specific moments of trauma that's happened for Indigenous people. And then when you look at the now the gates of hell are closed that isn't just an indigenous conversation that's being had there. It's a conversation that talks about inherent patriarchy and misogyny that women of all backgrounds have experienced, unfortunately, but becomes amplified through this lens of indigeneity.
4: Mm. This question goes to any of you. How will this exhibition encourage viewers who may not be from indigenous background, to reflect on their place and connection to America?
0: Well, I think it it starts an important conversation of whose land are you on? That's something that is not a new concept to Indigenous people. It may be a new concept to some visitors to the show. And it's meant to be a starting point of really thinking about what it means to live where you live, who was there before you, who's going to be there in the future, and what responsibilities you have to that space.
5: I'll just add, since, you know, the exhibition has opened and people are walking through the space, there's, I think, something that Ashley mentioned, and so did Elisa, about kind of beauty and subtlety and medicine and healing and the power between people. And there have been a lot of people who have come who have um, driven here that have been on civil rights tours, we've experienced a lot of people that have been on kind of you know, post COVID, although we're still living in a COVID reality, but they've been traveling and they've gone to places like the Legacy Museum in Montgomery, and they're coming here and they're trying to understand what their place is both physically and metaphorically in this conversation in and around power and their role. And I think art, to extend Elisa's beautiful title, is a way to find healing and reconciliation and also a path to maybe make change. And that's been wonderful for people to see. They've all said that they're not only coming, but they're coming back, that there's more for them to learn about.
2: Atlanta Contemporaries Executive Director, Veronica Kesenek. She was joined by Alyssa Harkins, curator of the exhibition, You Are Helisois Medicine, and Dr. Ashley Holland, curator of Returns, Cherokee Diaspora and Art. Both shows, are on view concurrently through September 4th. More information is on our website, wabe.org citylights Coming up, our series of local artists in their own words, speaking of the arts. Today, featuring multimedia artist Carl Jaynes, amplifying Atlanta, This is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words.
7: My name is Carl James, and I work in just about every medium. I paint using acrylics and spray paint. I sculpt with everything from light bright pegs to world globes to cars. Uh, I create architecture, I write poetry, film, fashion, and I've just recently started a a music project called Invaders on Mars. I think the term is uh, Renaissance Man, if I'm not mistaken. I've been making art since pretty much the beginning, but um, it took a while to realize how integral it, it is to my being. Growing up, Compliments were always a bit patronizing, kind of like the creative one, or sometimes what I was doing was referred to as artsy-fartsy, so I didn't really have a sense of how valuable or important what I was doing was. In my 20s, I went through a phase of thinking the title artist was almost sacred. I didn't dare call myself an artist. And finally, through all of my evolving, I realized it in myself and, I guess, claimed the mantle. My professional life started with just constantly producing and being celebrated by friends and then pushing ideas for public installations in front of politicians and money people and creating events on my own. I try to be open and explore all possibilities, especially the ones I resonate with. I'm inspired by something I don't really know How to describe it's like a a flicker that I feel when there's something truly original that I see or experience and it can come from anything. When I create I'm riding that kind of truly original wave drawing from the deepest well within me. I believe that in creating art we are truly altering the fabric of reality Everything is interconnected and when something new is added to all of these interconnections, everything shifts around. So I strive to add this web in a profound way that affects the overall form in a positive direction. Being a southerner and an artist, I think coming to Atlanta was inevitable. I consider Atlanta to be the capital of the South, and culture and artistic and creative communities are abundant and happening. Uh, I was coming here in high school to go to shows, hang out at Little Five and masquerade, and was going to galleries. I used to always uh, include going to the Marriott Marquis to ride up and down the elevators, good, clean fun like that. But now that I've been living here and working for 12, maybe 13, 14 years, I really know the city and I feel like Atlanta is leading the nation in a lot of ways with our history of civil rights and our diversity. We're ahead of the national conversation. And I've said for years that I think the healing we need in our country will start in Atlanta and I believe it already has. The art community is living testament of this. I go just about everywhere in Atlanta to seek out new art. Mint ATL is wonderful. Dash puts on all kinds of excitement. South River Arts is a great off the beaten path. I frequent Marsha Wood Gallery, Future Gallery, Zucat Gallery, Alan Avery, um, and of course The High. I go to shows at 529 and The Earl. Gallery 992 in the West and is an amazing experience showcasing improv experimental jazz, and I have uh, a venue myself called the Inner Space in my studio gallery. So I get to personally host artists from all over the country as they come through Atlanta. My work can be seen here locally in a bunch of places scattered around Atlanta. I just finished an exciting mural in West Midtown. I have a huge mural on the back of center stage. Uh, You can see it from 17th and Spring. It's kind of my Mount Everest of murals. I've got a couple pieces as part of the long wall in Cabbage Town. My studio gallery is located in underground Atlanta, which is really surreal for me, having gone there as a teenager. There's a group of us currently revitalizing that area, bringing it back to life with culture. And if you'd like to visit my website, it's carljanes.com. C-A-R-L-J-A-N is in November, E-S. Thanks.
2: Multimedia artist Carl Jaynes and our series Speaking of the Arts. More information about Janes' work is on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. might recognize that song from season 4 of the Netflix series Stranger Things. It's Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush, the 1970s singer-songwriter has a new and expanded audience now with the remix of Running Up That Hill. Kate Bush was the first female artist to achieve a U.K. number one with the self-written song Wuthering Heights. It was her debut single, written at the age of 19. As a tribute to Kate Bush, Atlanta and other big cities across the nation participate in the annual Most Wuthering Heights Day ever event this year's 7th celebration will take place saturday at candler park people of All races, genders, and ages are encouraged to arrive in their favorite red attire and recreate the dance from her iconic 1978 music video. The practice warm-up dance begins at 10, and the official dance starts at 10.30 a.m. Participants will also have the option to have their dance sponsored to support the Feminist Women's Health Center in Atlanta. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., photographer Ron Sherman will tell us about his upcoming showcase at the Roswell Visual Arts Center. Plus, our series highlighting local musicians in their own words, Speaking of Music, features the band Young Antiques. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Wrights, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at W-A-B-E City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta.